Worry and fear is our topic for this hour, the accepted sins, right? Not uh, uncommon. In fact, if we want to think about worry and fear, I could probably just bring up a couple names or a particular day in November that's around the corner. Um, Exactly. (laughs) Anybody that has children, grandchildren, or lives... Uh, in the United States, probably has concerns, right? Uh, I read an article this morning early uh, that said that 60-something percent of Americans right now are struggling with worry, fear, high blood pressure, uh, anxiety, general anxiety over the election. Um, that may be low in all reality. I mean, um, so when we talk about worry and fear, uh, it's a significant, it's a real issue, right? When we talk to some counselees, uh, they live under a constant low-grade pressure of worry and fear. Uh, one guy, every, every night, he checks his back door four, five, six times. He gets back to bed and thinks, oh boy, I'm not sure. If, I, I don't remember what I checked. I don't, I'm pretty sure that's locked. I'm just lives in constant worry. Uh, is my family safe? Uh, when a spouse leaves for the day and uh, just insists that everybody in the family is there to kiss him or her goodbye because they're afraid. I don't know what's going to happen during the day. I'm not sure if I'm going to ever be back. I'm not sure if they're going to be okay. Kids, lock the doors. Don't let them outside. I mean, just... Um, and would we say that there's seemingly more temptation today than there used to be? I would I would argue yes. I didn't... You know, I'm only 45. Uh, so, I grew up in a day where my parents would kiss us in the morning and we'd be gone all day. We'd pop in about lunchtime and have lunch and we'd leave after lunch and come back at dinner or dark or whenever and it didn't seem like they were too concerned. Uh, But if you told me that was going to happen with my children, I would say, no, it absolutely will not. I won't trust them out of my yard. I don't always trust them in my yard. I live out in the country where there's, (laughs) right, we have guns and everything else and I still don't trust them in the yard. Uh, So worry and fear... It's easy uh, for those issues to be real issues in any person's life. Um, Some sins are so common among Christians that they appear to be acceptable behavior. Worry and fear would certainly be at the top of that list. We will consider both of them together in this study because the similarities between both their problems and their solutions. So we'll start with worry. It says the motto of many... 21st century Christians seems to be why trust when you can worry right some realize it's wrong and try to hide their worry by giving it other titles such as I'm concerned I'm troubled this this disturbing I'm interested you know this really bothers me right but at the end of the day regardless of the term worry saps your energy drains your joy destroys vision curtails evangelisms aggregate aggravates physical ailments And unfortunately, it's contagious. It's easily caught. If you're around a worrier, it's easy to be worried. 
Uh, just get on Facebook for a little while or Twitter, <laughs> right? One of those places. I mean, it's worry is everywhere. Um, Jay Adams, in his helpful pamphlet on worry, he has this little story. It's so funny. It says, Joe worried all the time about everything. So one day, Bill saw Joe as happy as a man who, without a care in the world, he couldn't figure out what was going on. So Bill says, what happened? Joe said, I haven't worried for several weeks. Bill asked, well, how'd you manage that? Joe answered, I hired a man to worry for me. <laughs> Bill says, well, how much did you pay him? Joe says, $1,000 a week. Bill says, well, how could you possibly raise $1,000 a week to pay him? Joe says, that's his worry. <laughs> so I don't know if that'll work or not, but I would, if somebody wants to worry about the election, I'll be happy to pay something for it. Uh, so let's think about how can we define worry? Well, it comes from the Greek word uh, merimanao, which is a combination of two words, merizo, which means to divide, and noose, which is mind. So you could almost say it's a divided mind. <clears throat> Matthew 12, 25, there's all kinds of passages where it's used. A kingdom and a house that's divided. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself. That's the word for worry. In Mark 6, when the loaves and the fishes are divided, that's the same word for worry. In Mark 4.19, and the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. It's the idea there of even choke. It actually means, as I mentioned, a divided mind. To divide, rip apart, tear apart, be anxious, distract your attention. These help us understand that worry is an over-anxious concern, a preoccupation with the future that divides and distracts the mind from current responsibilities. In the Bible, the word is actually usually translated worry, anxious, anxiety, or care. It's fascinating because when you think about worry, uh, you know, if you've ever had a, or right until recently, all washing machines came with what? That's a little pole in the middle or whatever you'd call it. It's an agitator, right? That's what it's called. What does it mean to be an agitator? It just constantly moves and it's constantly touching the stuff, touching the clothes, right? So as it moves and the, it agitates the water, it's just constantly touching. When you think about the word worry, that's essentially all it is. You're just constantly touching the same thought in your mind. You're constantly reviewing it. Uh, where you and the circumstances are the primary for focus. right? So, so it's not just that you're thinking about something, but you're thinking about the same thing. We're going to talk about this more. But worry is the exact opposite of meditating. It is the same process. It's meditation, where's your mind focused? It's focused on God's word and on God's character. Not the circumstance or the outcome. Worry, your mind isn't focused on God's word and God's character. Your, your mind is focused on what? The outcome and the circumstances. It's, so it's the same process. Either way, you just keep touching something. You keep agitating it. You keep walking by it. 
So it's, it's not to be confused with diligent care and concern towards your responsibilities. Right? For sure, we have specific passages like 2 Corinthians 11. Besides other things, what comes from me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So Paul was concerned. Philippians 2, uh, he talks about, For I have no one like-minded who would sincerely care for the state. The idea here is, I care. Galatians 4.19, he says, My little children from whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. The word here is travel, it's translated labor, right? It's, it's something that's on his mind. The goal is, so when we say, well, we don't want you to ever think, right? We don't want you to become mediocre. Uh, whatever, right? I trust God and trust his word. Uh, we don't want you to be disengaged, mediocre, nonchalant Christians. Uh, but we want you to not worry, right? Worry does not equal hard work and proper care and concern. Uh, God wants us to be hard workers and extend proper care and concern to everything we undertake. Worrying is just thinking about it and doing nothing. Right? Worry is, or doing the wrong things. It would be both. Uh, it's planning that acknowledges God's sovereignty. That's not worry. Right? James 4.13 talks about that. I call that, you always want to plan in pencil. Because you don't want God to ever have to use whiteout, right? Eraser works easier than whiteout. Wouldn't you agree? Right? If you write something in pencil and erase it, not that big of a deal. Write it in pen, you got to white it out. That's harder. Or if you chisel it, and you got to do a lot more work. And so at some level, uh, as you think about how you make your plans, we want to do it in pencil. We want to allow God to easily be able to change them. And so it's planning, but that's not worry. Uh, God expects us to plan. And we know that God controls the future and we don't. And so we plan with the asterisk of if it's God's will. Uh, God has providential veto power. And so if he chooses to veto it, that's his business. We're ex we accept that. We don't have to worry about it. If right, So I know God could change the future. That doesn't make me worry. Because God has a, he's a good planner. In fact, Isaiah says he's the, it's, in most translations, it's called the wonderful counselor. Uh, literally, that is, he's a wonderful planner. That's the term in the Hebrew. Uh, so Jesus is a wonderful planner. We can trust his plans. Trusting him doesn't equal worry. Worry is an over-anxious concern regarding the future. And things that keep a person from fulfilling current biblical responsibilities because I'm too busy worrying. Dave Pallison writes this. Central to worry is the illusion that we can control things. If only I could get my retirement right, I could control the future. If only I could get my diet and medicine right, I wouldn't get cancer. If only I could figure out the right childbearing technique, I, couldn't, I can guarantee how my kids will turn out. Right? Worry assumes the possibility of control over the uncontrollable. The illusion of control lurks inside your anxiety. Anxiety and control are two sides of the one coin. When we can't control something, we worry about it. That's in his book called Worry. So I think it's helpful, especially as we deal with counselees. When does godly concern become sinful worry? Right? It, wouldn't you say that's a helpful thing to know? Because we want to have godly concern, but we don't want to simply worry. Let me suggest six things. Number one, 
if your thoughts are focused on controlling the future. Controlling and or, you could even put a little note there, and or changing the future. Right? If you're... If your thoughts are, okay, this is what I want to do to change the future, then it's worry. If your thoughts are unproductive, in other words, they're just caught in the spin cycle. They just constantly go round and round and round and round. And you're thinking about the same things over and over. That would be worry. It's unproductive. You've thought for an hour and you've gone nowhere. Right? You've not thought anything productive or even that necessarily honors God. Number three, if it controls you instead of you controlling it. I can't tell you how many counselees I've had say to me, you know what? Um, I lay down at night and I just lay there for hours and my mind just goes everywhere. Right? I just can't get this stuff out of my mind. That's worry. Right? That's not trusting God with it. How about number four? It causes you to neglect your God-given responsibilities and relationships. Now, this is absolutely one of my favorite uh, charts ever. It's out of Instruments in a Redeemer's Hands. Years before that, I received it from Paul. In, I was in my doctoral work with Paul and Dave and all those guys. And he gave it to us then. I just love this chart. It's the clarifying responsibility chart. right? So there's two, there's two circles here. And so... Life is inside this circle. Everything from the white end, this is your life. In life, there are certain things that are your responsibility. You can't give those things away. So to love Jesus, to live for Jesus, to love my wife, to love my children, to lead my family. I can't give that to somebody else. Those are my responsibilities alone. So that's the inner circle. Those are my responsibilities. What am I supposed to do if it's my responsibility? I'm supposed to be faithfully obedient, right? I faithfully obey if God gives me a responsibility. But as you know, and this isn't proportionate, really. As you know, there are more things that are concerning to us than there are actually that are our responsibility. Many, many, many more things. Am I concerned if all my children receive Christ? Oh, I am. I'm very concerned about their salvation. Is it my responsibility that they uh, accept Christ? It's not my responsibility. It's my responsibility to teach them Christ. Right? So my responsibility, I faithfully obey. But what I'm concerned about that I'm not responsible for, I have to entrust to God. Right? And that's true for am I concerned that my pilot this afternoon is going to get me to Springfield, Missouri safely? Oh, I'm very concerned about that. On my way here, we had to sit on the uh, on the tarmac for two hours, waiting for Dallas to open back up. They'd closed the airport because of the lightning uh, yesterday. Well, so we're sitting there, sitting there. Oh, boy. And then we, we take off, and we're on our way up, and the pilot comes on, and he says, you know, it's going to be so rough today. We're just going to ask the uh, stewardess not to even serve you all anything. Just we're, She's going to sit down because it's going to be so rough. Well, there's people on the plane white-knuckled. Right? They're concerned about what's going on. Occasionally I sit by them and it, I mean, they're, they're, they worry enough to make everybody worry. I mean, they are sweating. They're chewing gum and everything they can do just to get themselves together. And I'm thinking, if you would quit moving, I could sleep over here. Right? <laughs> there is, there's no reason 
I am responsible, not anything. I'm responsible just to obey the stewardess. That's my only responsibility on this plane. I can do that. Am I concerned that he gets us there? I am very concerned. But I have to trust God with that. I've been on some ugly plane rides. But at the end of the day, you can't worry about it, right? There are Bible verses, it's clear. Won't add one second to our day. Won't change one thing. We have to entrust those to God. Now let's look at these. This arrow, we're talking about this blue arrow here, represents people minimizing the inner circle as they expect to do as they expect God to do their job. So some people take their responsibilities and actually make that circle smaller because they say, Oh, I just trust God. Just give it to God. Give everything to God. Well, what happens is they're lazy. Right? Because they're not paying attention to what God calls them to do. So some things that God calls them to do, they actually neglect because they're saying, well, I just trust God with that. Well, then other people, notice these two arrows. These arrows represent people expanding their inner circle as they try to do God's job. Right? So they're actually reaching out here and they're trying to force that their children come to faith. Or they're trying to make sure, sh- right? They're doing things out here they're concerned about. And when you begin to try to... Uh, control what's uncontrollable anxiety fear anger all those things shoot through the roof because this is a key component of this chart god does not give you grace to work out here right what's the bible say god gives us grace for everything he's called us to but he's not called us to these things the only thing he's called us to do is entrust god with these things we have grace to trust God. We don't have grace to control our children. We don't have grace to control the relationships they're making, the uh, decisions they're making. So God gives us grace for sure for everything in the center and grace to entrust to God, but everything else we're trying to do what God's not called us to do. So does that help you? That this, is, this has been so helpful for counselees over the years. Uh, I've drawn this, these two circles for I don't know how many. Because as you listen, you're starting to listen to them. You're thinking, oh my, you're outside your circle. That's what I just typically caught. Ah, what you're trying to do is outside your circle. So I ask a counselee, let's create a list here. And I've given this to you as part of the handouts. Let's create a list here that helps you realize what's in my circle and what's not in my circle. What's in my wife's circle or what's in my children's circle or what's in my employer circle am i concerned if my employer makes it yeah no i've never worked at a job where i didn't want them to be successful why because their success is my success it keeps me employed at the end of the day though i can't there's nothing i can do about that if they're successful or not i'm only responsible for what job they've given me i can't do the president's job for them right so you understand how that works so if it causes you neglect Oh, let's, let me make one more point then. So, if I am out here and I'm trying to focus my attention on something out here that I am literally 100% not responsible for, where, if my attention's here, where is it not? It's not here. And so, if my attention's here, that means I'm going to let these things go. Now, one of the illustrations we use when I'm teaching this to kids is we put a circle on the ground. Uh, we, we put them, we use uh, cones. It's actually like a square. But we put these cones, 
and we take uh, like six or eight balloons, and we put one child in the middle of this in the middle of this uh, circle, and we say the only thing you can't do is you cannot let the black balloon touch the ground. But the goal is to see how many balloons you can keep up in the air as long as you can keep them up in the air. And we have two teams, right? We do two of these, and so these two kids are playing. Well, what happens? The kids say, oh, if I win, I can't let the black balloon touch the ground. Well, the reality is there's two things going. You're not supposed to let the black balloons, but you're also supposed to keep as many of the other ones up as you can. Within seconds, every balloon's on the ground except the black balloon in both circles, in both groups. Why is that? Because the black balloon becomes their focus and they lose all the other colors, right? So we highlighted one. It means they let the rest go. If you're living out here, you're going to lose all the other things you should be doing. And God's given you grace to do this. He's not given you grace to live out here. All right, so it causes you to neglect your God-given responsibilities and relationships. Number five, it starts to damage your body. The wasting of energy affects the body. There's a good article that talks about how anxiety and worry can increase your heart rate, increase muscle tension, increase restlessness. You get fatigued and tired. You sleep poorly. Your tiredness makes work difficult. You accomplish less. Ultimately, you further sin, and for a lot of people, it ends up in depression. All because of worry. Now, this is just a side comment. This is for another day, another time. Often, I think fibromyalgia, it should not surprise us that many people diagnosed with fibromyalgia are lifetime warriors. I'm just making the comment. It's certainly there are many, many people diagnosed with it. I'm not saying that it's not physical or is physical. There's, it's, it's a whole hour we could spend on just that one issue. But it is not uncommon. In fact, I would say another one, too. Uh, I've counseled a lot of people with Tourette's. It is fascinating to me that the occurrence of the tick, and in every person the tick looks different if they've been diagnosed with Tourette's, it fascinates me that the occurrence of the tick always increases if they worry. And it is dramatic how you see it take place. Right, so there's an inner man, outer man, and there's damage to the body. Right, so worrying is not helpful. They may damage the body by spasms, a nervous stomach, a spastic colon. You've heard people talk about, oh, yeah, since I heard that news, I've had diarrhea for a week. Right, or I've just, I can't control my bowels or whatever it is. I've not been hungry for multiple days as I've been thinking about this. Ulcers, asthma, skin rash, headache. All those things are damaged to the body when people are worrying. Number six, you start losing hope instead of finding answers. <clears throat> and you shut down and stop functioning. Worriers usually stop functioning in many areas of life. It leads to immobility. It's a loss of the will to act. The mind is so divided that it does not act in one direction. So, the first thing is godly concern becomes worry whenever any of those things are taking place. Number two, bottom line, worry is sinful. John Piper says, 
Sin is what you do when you're not satisfied in God. That's worry. Exodus 20 says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You say, well, what's the God? Whatever it is you're worrying about is your God. Listen to what humility. T.J. Mahaney writes this in his book, Humility, on page 75 and 76. He says, the humble are genuinely carefree. I've discovered how true this is about myself and my soul. Where there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root of it. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. What's the solution? Humble yourself, God says. How? Acknowledge your need for me. Cast your cares upon me and I will transform you. I have to remember that whenever I feel buried under care, the real issue is pride and my self-sufficiency. I must deliberately and specifically cast my cares upon him and thereby humble myself. Don't be mistaken. God hasn't gone anywhere. He's just as sovereign, just as good, just as faithful when I am buried under care as he was when I wasn't. The issue isn't God. It's my pride that resists trusting in him through dependence upon him. Right, And so it's sinful. In Matthew 6, 19-34, Jesus Christ addresses worry and he forbids it three times. We'll be all over this passage off and on here. In verse 25, it says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What will you put on it? What you will put on it, pardon me. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So he says, do not worry. It's an imperative. Verse 31, Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So he says, do not worry. The Apostle Paul also commands believers, be anxious for nothing. It's another command. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Right, Christ's teaching in Matthew 6 exposes two sinful roots of worry and the cure for each. We'll talk about those here as we go. Let's think about it. Worry is idolatry. That's the first sinful root. Worry is idolatry and the solution is repentance. Worry is idolatry. The solution is repentance. What's it mean to worry? Idolatry, pardon me. What's that mean? Idolatry means to worship something or someone other than the true and living God. You worship something. You're giving yourself to some person, goal, ideal, concern, or object rather than Christ. Another way to say it is you're putting your desires above God's desires and His commands for your life. So you are giving your attention to something else. It's allowing your concerns over the future... And things to be more important than thinking and acting God's way. Um, and all, the reality is, it doesn't accomplish anything. It's not helpful. In verse 27, it says, Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubic to your stature? You can't control the future. I can't control it. I would love to control the future. 
I'd love to know the future, but then the Bible says I can't because God wants me to trust him. But wouldn't it be nice? Our church needs to build a couple million dollar building project. I'm telling you, I would love to know the future. Right? Is it a wrong idea, a good idea, a bad idea? Do we need to trim it down? Are we going to be able to afford it? I've got a million questions I could ask. If I could only see the future, I would know. But the Bible says don't worry about it. I can't control it. I can't worry about a stock market drop or crash. I can't worry about who's going to win the election. I can't worry about, am I going to have a heart attack or serious illness? I can't worry about, are my children going to accept Christ or not accept Christ? Right? It defies all reason. It's senseless to worry. Verse 34, he says, Take no thought for tomorrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Again, in verse 34. It assumes responsibility for what God's not given us or he's not delegated it to us. It steals my time away from today's responsibility. Think about it. If this is all the energy God gives us today, it's in this bottle. You can already tell I'm part of the way through it. Right? If that's all the energy God gives for me today, if I use this energy for what God doesn't ask me to do, then it means I'm not going to have this energy to do what God has asked me to do. Right? I am transferring the gift of God, which is, which is opportunity and energy. Think about 1 Peter 4 when he says God gives us energy to do what he wants us to do. So I'm using the energy God's given me and I'm putting that towards something that God doesn't want me to do. It's like, I mean, let's, it'd be sinful in any sense. But right, if we have a guy sit down at the computer and he plays on his computer all day, he looks at pornography and everything else, he doesn't do his job, he gets fired from his job. As a biblical counselor, every one of us would say, well, how stupid was that? You sat at your, we may not say it quite that way, but we certainly are thinking it. Right, you sat at your computer, you knew it was against the rule to look at pornography, you used the hours you were on the clock to look at pornography, instead of, Doing your job. What did you expect? They didn't pay you to do all that. So you got fired. Appropriately so. But how many of us sit and we don't have a computer with pornography. We just have all the stuff that's going on in our mind. And we use the energy to use it there instead of on what God's told us to do. And so we redirect God's energy. It wastes our energy. It takes a lot of energy to worry. Right? It's, it's like sitting in a rocking chair and trying to go somewhere. Right? You can move a whole lot, but you're not going anywhere. Right? It just takes a lot of energy. <laughs> but you don't go anywhere. What's that? No, it's in my notes. Right? It's um, because today's uncompleted task becomes tomorrow's problems. So not only have I wasted today, but now tomorrow I've got more to do. You could even say it this way. Worry is actually laziness when you think about this idolatry, right? If we're going to, if we're going to worship something that's not controllable, uh, it's a real issue. I love one person, and I don't know who said this, but it's a great quote. Worry thrives when worship dies. Right? Because we are worshiping something we're not supposed to worship. Worry thrives when worship dies. Somebody else said it's unknown. Worry is a trickle of fear running through the mind, ever cutting a deeper gorge into which all of our thoughts are drained. 
It's just that worry is a worry thrives when worship dies. The second one, worry is a trickle of fear running through the mind, ever cutting a deeper gorge into which all of our thoughts are drained. So I have a person in our church and just says, man, I'm a, I am a chronic worrier. Well, that's not helpful. Certainly not something to brag about. Worry expresses idolatry in the heart. We tend to have an inordinate focus on three things. First is things, like material things. Look at verses 19 to 21. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I was doing that from memory, so that wasn't very good. I was mixing, I think, two or three different translations. <laughs> so that's the, I learned that as a kid, and so my brain jumps back to King James, and that certainly doesn't hardly make sense sometimes. So uh, what are we thinking? We're focusing on what you don't have. We focus on something, not God. Verse 31, therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? We don't have that. And so we're thinking about it, focused on it. It's like an unbeliever. Verse 32 says, For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So what's our focus supposed to be on? Not on things, but the giver of things. Right? We don't focus on the gift. We focus on the giver. It says what? Yeah, excellent. Psalm 16.5. Yeah, good passage for that. And it, yeah, if you look at the word portion all the way through the Psalms, it's a it's a beautiful idea because it's what God's given you. It's your inheritance and what he gives us. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's very, very clear. Whatever you have, that's your portion. So you rejoice in your portion. Because God never gives you a bad portion. Whatever it is, is what he wants you to have. James, uh, James 1, 17 says every gift God gives is a good and perfect gift. And that includes your portion. So you focus, you focus on what's temporary and not what's eternal. It's a thing. Here's the second thing. We tend to have an inordinate focus on goals. Verses 22 and 23, again, we're just all over Matthew 26. I've mentioned we'd stay here for most of the time. Verses 22 and 23 says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Right. So if your goal is the wrong thing, it brings you down here's the third one we focus inordinately on people basically there it says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and mammon so it's just the constant reminder uh, of how important it is. All right, so let's put together a definition then. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture 
our hearts and minds and affections more than God. It is living on substitutes. It's exchanging the one true living God for a counterfeit. Now, I think the person who put this definition together, I think it's uh, Brad Bigney uh, in his book, Treason. It's a fantastic book if you ever get a chance to get it. Uh, but I don't have him marked. I, I assume I probably thought I would remember that. But I think that's pretty much Bigney's definition. So it's anything or anyone that begins to capture your heart and mind. Look at letter C. The things you worry about reveal your idols. Finding a spouse. Getting a promotion. Your health, your money, success, children, people's opinions. We call that fear of man. That, that identifies your idols. It's a self-centered focus and worship of self. And it's more concerned for self than the things of God. So if you don't worship God, you will worship self and other things. And here are four questions that are incredibly helpful to determine if something is becoming an idol to you. Because anything you want can be an idol, right? Anything. I want godly children, but having godly children can be an idol. I want to be a good husband, but being a good husband can be an idol. You say, but both of those things are good things. Well, the question is, how much am I wanting it? And so here's four questions to help you identify is a desire transitioning into an idol here's the first one am i willing to sin to get it if you're willing to sin to get it then it's becoming an idol am i willing to sin if i don't get it that would be the second am i willing to sin if i think i'm going to lose it And the fourth one, do I run to it as a refuge instead of God? A good cup of coffee, right? If I'm driving home and, you know, for the last two and a half years, I've been no decaf. I've been all decaf. And so uh, that's why I can stand behind the podium and not be everywhere. Uh, so I've been, no, I've been no calf. And so what that means now it's probably not as much of a struggle as might, it might have been, but I just love the taste and the smell of coffee. I love to have coffee. I drink it still all day long. Now it's just decaf. It's just a fun drink. Uh, well, if I am sitting trying to think through an issue, or if I am concerned about something coming up, right, our key word here, concern versus worry. So I'm concerned, and I think, you know what, a cup of coffee would just make this okay. You know, if I had a cup of coffee, I think this would be fine. I think I could sit here and think about it. I'm actually turning to coffee as a refuge. If I'm driving home thinking, you know, I just need to spend time with my children and this will be okay. Uh, well, I may need to spend time with my children, but it, the motivation for spending time with my children shouldn't be that my problems of the day are okay. Right? So then my children become a refuge. If I'm driving home thinking, and I, I love ice cream. If I'm thinking... Oh, I can't wait to get home and get that bowl of ice cream. I've been wanting this all day long. Right? Those are refuge issues. And you say, none of those are bad. If I had changed those illustrations, said, you know, I'm driving home and I'm thinking, I just need a six-pack. I just want to sit in my garage and drink all night. Then this will be better. Or self-medicate with some other kind of drug or with some other kind of thing. 
Right? So it's just basically saying, if you turn to it as a refuge, then you know that whatever it is you're looking for, it's, it's too much. Jesus declares that you cannot serve God and something or someone else simultaneously. No one can serve two masters, again, Matthew 25, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. A worrier needs to be called the, to repent of his false master, his false gods, his false refuges, and renew his faith in Jesus Christ, his Savior and Lord. Right, so repentance is necessary. So, solution was repentance. The problem was idolatry. Here's the second issue. Worry is unbelief, and the solution is faith. Now we're going to turn to Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, and before we get there, let me just read Hebrews 3.12. It says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Right? It is possible for a believer in Christ to not believe, to not have faith in relationship to a particular issue. Jesus describes worriers of people of little faith in verse 30 of Matthew 6. It says, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What? Because worry is the fruit of remaining unbelief and doubt in a Christian. The presence of worry indicates that there's something or some, someone or something you're living for other than the Lord. The worrier should be helped to identify the specific idols and lies that are ruling him and called to confess them as sin. And so the fruit of, re of repentance, pardon me, for a worrier will be manifesting faith in God by disciplining his mind to focus on, let me give you four things, to focus on God's care for mankind. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. He takes care of birds and plants so he can take care of us. God is concerned, verses, verse 26 God's omniscience, that means God's in control. He knows, or pardon me, that means he knows what, he knows everything. I said that wrong. He knows your needs. Therefore, do not worry. What shall we eat or what shall we drink? For all these things the Gentiles seek. God's promises in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's a promise that your need will be met. Philippians 4, 19. God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Matthew 6.30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today, today is, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Romans 8.32, what a great verse. I don't think that's in your notes. Romans 8.32 says, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us on the cross, how much shall he also freely give us all things? And so here's the fourth thing to focus on, the pleasing God by caring for today's responsibilities. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow still worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So deal with today's trouble. 
Don't worry about the future trouble. So idolatry and unbelief of worry is to be replaced, right? Put off, put on. Is to be replaced by a worship of and faith in God. This will be manifest in a lifestyle marked by three major things. The first one is right praying. Philippians says, Be anxious for nothing but at everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surprises all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So confess your worry as sin. This gives us hope. And you want to confess your general as well as specific requests. Pardon me. You want to make general as well as specific requests. Tell God about your specific concerns. I had a girl on Facebook this yesterday. She was able to buy a car. She said, I have prayed for this car for the last 188 days. And God graciously provided it for her in his gracious way, in his own timing. Um, praise the Lord for that. It was a general and a specific request. If I, I, There are things that I pray for absolutely every day, sometimes multiple times each day. And at this point, God's answer is, hasn't provided those particular items. But we can certainly bring it to God and pray. And be thankful that God loves, he cares, he listens. He's using this trial to spur growth. He provides peace. Thank God for his goal that God is growing us in the process. So right praying. Here's the second element. Right thinking. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Faith is a clear conscience and thankful, thankfulness free. Faith, a clear conscience and thankfulness free the mind to be used correctly. The mind will need to be disciplined to dwell on these things. But it is so easy, isn't it, to let your mind be drawn away to think about something else. How many of us pray and about halfway, maybe not even halfway, a minute into the prayer, we're thinking about... The grocery list. Oh, yeah, I can't forget. Got to get, got to get dish solder so while I'm there. Right, okay, sorry, Lord. Oh, yeah, got to email that person. Sorry, Lord. Right? It's easy. Your mind easily drifts. And so it's that right thinking. Plan according to the biblical principles and priorities. Be solution-oriented. If there's something in your circle, plan to do what's in your circle. And then study and meditate on other passages such as the ones that are listed there, a whole list of them, to help you with your thinking. All right, here's the third element. That is right acting. Philippians 4.9 says, And whatever things you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, what? Do. Right, right acting. And the God of peace will be with you. That focus, attention, and energy into fulfilling today's responsibilities. Get busy. What do you need to do? What schedule do you need to make? Restructure. Live your theology. We say we trust God, so we have to live it. We have to put feet to it. And learn from the lifestyle of productive Christian leaders. 
right? Get into an accountability circumstance. Ask somebody else to help you as you go along. Note the progression here. Right praying leads to right thinking, and it looks like the slide switched there, and it goes to right acting. Right? So if we're praying right and we're thinking right, then we're going to ultimately act right. All right, so that's a lot of stuff on worry. Worry and fear are connected. And we have about 10 minutes here. I'm going to work you through fears. It's a lot smaller notes. We just got a couple pages left. Let's just do a quick true and false, okay? Here's number one. Fear, per se, is not wrong. True, you're right. Jesus is never said to be afraid. True. There isn't any passage that says Jesus is afraid. The fear of God is the one fear that removes all other fears. Actually, that's a trick question. False. It's over 450 times in the Bible not to fear. Yes, true. Somebody said probably. Yes, that is true. Genesis 3.10 is the first occurrence of fear in the Bible. Yes, that's true. Didn't, we didn't get far out of the gate before people were fearful. And fear is the feeling of anxiety and agitation caused by the presence or nearness of danger, evil, pain, or many other things. And the answer is true. All right, so let's, if you'll notice in our quick quiz, we've kind of said some fears are okay, some fears aren't. So let's try to think through those. First, fears that are right. Let me suggest three of them. Fear of God is right. Now, fear of God is an important fear because fear of God is the, it actually refers to awe or respect. I use the word awesome when I think of the word fear of God. It's a constant awareness or an awesome respect for God's presence and God's power in life that motivates me to be obedient. Years ago, James McDonald, in one of his first books, said that his practice has always been not to call anything awesome, but God and his work. And I, as a family, we read that, and we just said, you know what, as our family, let's just never do that. We agree. So I've re I have limited my use of the word awesome. The only thing I say is awesome is stuff that relates to God, just to keep my brain working right on the fear of God. Right? It's a... a it's... It refers to dread, right? A tornado. You can fear a tornado. Well, how do you fear a tornado? It's a combination of you see it and say, wow, that's awesome. I remember sitting one time on a lake, and my buddy and I were fishing. I never told my wife about it for good reasons. <laughs> so we were sitting on this lake. We were fishing. We, one of us, I don't know which of the two of us, we were at a 90-degree turn. It was a rock wall. And it was a 90-degree turn. And so we were sitting here... Uh, on this side of the turn and one of us looked back and said you know that cloud really is concerning and the other one said and I don't remember it was Ray and myself and I don't remember if I said or if Ray said it. and I said I think I'm the one who said it I said man that looks like a cloud that could throw a tornado 
And, and as soon as one of the two of us said it, a tornado dropped out of the cloud. We're talking we're 150 yards away from it. On a boat, right, trolling motors in the water. It's not like you can run from it. I mean, we're thinking, do you jump in the lake? I don't know what you do. I've never had a tornado drill on a boat before, so I'm not sure how to respond to, right? You could get in the boat, I guess, cover your head. I don't know what you do. It dropped out. It came right down the lake, and it went right up just feet from us. And I, you just sit there. There's nothing to say when that happens, right? You may need to jump in the water or something, right? You might need to uh, change your clothes, but... Uh, there's absolutely nothing to say in that moment because you're there in fear, right? There's a dread, I could die. But there's also a fear of that is fascinating, that that could come out of the cloud and go back up in the air. That's kind of fear of God, right? There is a dread. Now, the dread is always, uh, is always mitigated against God's goodness, so we, as believers, adopted children, we don't fear God in dread, but certainly an unbeliever should fear God in dread because God's dealt with his wrath with us on the cross with Jesus. But we certainly have the awe. What's another one? Fear of danger. Right? It's appropriate to be, have fear if there's danger. We see that multiple places in the Scripture. A healthy respect for danger is not sinful. A tornado is one of those places. Uh, so you want to appropriately fear. I'm going to ignore those comments and keep moving. <clears throat> the next is fear. Is there some fear due to guilt? Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Matthew 14.1-2 says, At the time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus, and said to a servant, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. He was scared. Leviticus. Right? He had killed John the Baptist. So uh, Leviticus, that it says that they're so fearful of shaking, uh, it makes you run. Right? And there's, so these, there's these times. Uh, basically, let me summarize it this way. I need to move on or we're going to not get finished. Fear is right and good when it moves us toward God and biblical behavior. Fear is right and good when it moves us toward God and biblical behavior. What's the other kind of fear? Well, there are several fears that are wrong. The first one is fear of man, not God. Fear of man is talking about when you refuse to stand for Christ and the principles of Christ because you want respect from a person or you fear the way a person is going to respond. Being afraid of someone who can kill the body. That would be the Luke 12 passage. Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after they, they have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. In John 12, right, it's the chief rulers. They believed on Christ. But because of fear being put out of the synagogue, they didn't take a public stand. That's fear of man. Remember, we talked earlier, Galatians 2. Remember we the anger with Peter, and so he gets around there, at, I think it's Acts 10, it's, uh, but the, whatever the Acts passage is, in Peter 2, he's, or in First Peter, in Galatians 2, Peter is saying, uh, Paul confronts him because he's expressing fear of man. He wants, he's more concerned about the Jews than he is God. What else? Fear of the 
things temporal rather than eternal. Again, the Luke 4, 12 passage, 4 and 5, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Right? That's, that's the quick part. That's easy. Fear the one who can send you to heaven or hell. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Right? Have an eye for the eternal. Don't fear things that are not. And fear of things we cannot change. Proverbs 3.25 says, Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. Some things we just can't change. Right now, I think that's where we are with this election. There are so many things we can't change and so many things that could just go south very quickly. Right? Life could get very difficult for us as Christians. The Bible's just saying we can't fear that. There's nothing we can do about it. Summary. Fear is wrong and sinful when it's allowed to motivate thinking and behavior that's unbiblical. So what is a phobia? Let me just mention this real quick. <clears throat> As we, We're going to talk about some keys to overcoming sinful fear, but let me just mention a phobia. A phobia is a habit mostly built on unpleasant past experiences. You could say a, mo you could say a, a phobia is fear of bad feelings. When someone says, I have a fear of this, I'll tell you, I never, ever, ever understood. And I know I've got to tell the story fast. I never understood in my life someone who was fearful of talking in front of people. Because in my life, I'd never been fearful. Never once. And people would say, aren't you afraid? No, I've never been. I mean, I had guys, older men, say, the day I'm not fearful when I get in front of the people will be the day I quit preaching because then I know I'm not humble or something. And I just thought, well, I've never felt that in my life. Are you saying I'm full of pride or what's the deal? I've just never been fearful. Well, then I was at a, at a big conference in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. And I got up, and I'd been feeling bad, and I started teaching. And in the process of teaching, I started feeling like I was getting ready to pass out. And so I'm, I'm looking around thinking I need a stool or something to sit on. Because, and so I came up quickly. I came up with this illustration of where, right, right in the middle of my talk, I thought I need an illustration where I have to sit down to pull off my shoe. So I... Take a chair, pull it over, sit down. I pull my shoe off, start talking about the shoe, right? This is all improv, imp, right? Improvision. <laughs> and so I work through this whole shoe thing, put it back on, just remain sitting there. And I just keep talking, sitting, right? No one in the audience has a clue, although my face is probably beat white. I am thinking I'm going down if I'm not careful. I work through it, um, have no idea what's going on. I told you I'm no, no caffeine now because it's... Uh, it was all part of the same process. So I just continued to feel bad. I got up on another church, in a, in a church, and this next time, and I just thought, I'm going to, I still don't feel good. There's something going wrong here as I started teaching. And so at that point, I was not feeling the way I was in front of that big crowd. But because I started feeling uneasy, I started fearing the fear that I was getting ready to feel like I did that other time. And almost hyperventilated. Just that sense of fear gripped me of I'm getting ready to do what I did that other time. And if I do what I did that other time, I'm going to faint. 
And I can't do that because I'm supposed to be preaching. I'm in minute two, and it's a 60-minute message. What in the world am I going to do? Right? And I'm saying what, right? People are listening to me. I'm walking through the passage. I'm reading a text, and all that stuff's playing in my brain. Well, I'm out of breath. I mean, I can't hardly breathe because this fear has just totally gripped me. It's fear of the fear. That's what a phobia is. Well, now I understand because it took a while to work through that, a long while. Because every time something wasn't quite right, right, sometimes it was the temperature, whatever, it would just be like, oh, is today the day I'm going to pass out? And so it's something I had to work through. And in God's sovereignty, he allowed me to be fearful so that I would understand it, I think. Uh, so a panic attack, what is that? Again, we got to rush here. A panic attack, hey, we're down to one minute. A panic attack is really not an attack, right? It's, it's focusing on something fearful, and again, you begin to fear the fear. A, fanning, a, a panic attack, pardon me, uh, cannot hurt you. The only thing that can hurt you in a panic attack is if you actually pass out and hit something, fall. You, there's a physical thing that happens. So if you, because a lot of times in counseling, people come to us with these panic attacks. Panic attacks are driven by fearing fear. There's something going on, and it begins the hyperventilating process that I just told you about. It can feel like a full-blown heart attack. It can feel like you're falling all to pieces. It cannot hurt you physically. Your body is made to shut down. And so if a panic attack goes full-blown, the worst it'll do is make you pass out. So if you know, I'm having a panic attack, the counselee's having a panic attack, Sit down, lay down, just put yourself in a situation where if you actually do lose consciousness, you're not going to hurt yourself. But outside of that, it's not, it's not going to hurt your heart. It's not going to do something crazy. Because part of a panic attack is you're wondering, am I falling apart? If you understand, I'm not falling apart. I'm just basically hyperventilating over some issue that's gripped my heart. Then it helps you deal with the whole panic thing and helps you walk through it over time. Okay, so here's keys to overcoming. I got to give them to you real quick. Develop a strong God focus. That's key for life, isn't it? Deal with guilt biblically. Guilt that's not dealt with is going to make you fear. Because you're fearing God. Because you know you've not dealt with guilt. You're fearing that other people find out. There's all kinds of things. Right? If they're unsaved, they need to be saved. Develop love as the antidote to fear. First John talks about that, doesn't it? It's the opposite of fear. View fearful situations as opportunities to grow for God's glory. That's what I was doing. I had to begin to say, okay, what do I need to do when I start feeling panicked when I'm speaking? And I've often in the front of a, when I was getting working through all this stuff, and we did get through the medical stuff as well, but the medical stuff was secondary, really, to what was going on in my heart. And I had to develop a, a habit of, okay, I've been here before. This has happened before. I'm not going to pass out. Nothing's going to happen. I just have to keep focused on what am I doing? I'm serving God's children. So that's my primary focus. I'm serving God's children for God's glory. Therefore, I can't get nervous. I can't pass out. I can't lose my train of thought. All that stuff's going through my mind again as I'm teaching about whatever it is, the topic. Right? So uh, we have to view it as not, this is an opportunity to grow in Christ. I'm, I'm standing here as a weak person, uh, and so I'm just going to have to work through this. And by God's grace, 
uh, it's happened. And meditate on and memorize key scriptures. Then there's a whole list there of some selected resources. All right, what you'll see as you continue, there's a homework worry assignment on page 8. All right, and then on page 9, there's a clarifying responsibility. That's the one I told you about. That's the worksheet. And on page 10, there's a homework assignment for fear. So that'll just hopefully give you some good resources uh, to help with your counselees. Absolutely. You can reproduce all of them. All right. Lord, I pray you would grant us wisdom. Thank you for this two days, the last 10 hours, the various teachers, the various information. I pray that we will use it, process it, think about it to your glory, for your glory, and for the good of your people. Thank you again for trusting us to speak and do for you. I pray that you would not let us serve others without carefully doing self-counsel first. Again, for your glory, we pray. Protect these dear folks as they go home, as they live, and as they try to serve the people you have them around. In Jesus' name, amen.